0: Hey there, it's Satya Doyle-Bayak, co-host of the Red Book Podcast. I'm popping in here a couple years later after we finished the podcast to say that I have a book coming out, and I would love for you to read it. I think if you like this podcast, you might be into it. It's a Jungian-informed book for people in what Jung called the first half of life, what I call quarter life. The book itself is called Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood, it is coming out July 26th, 2022 through Random House. It's available wherever you buy books. Pre-orders are open now, and I hope you like it. Um, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Satya Doyle-Bayak, and this is the Salome Podcast. Something is making its approach to us. Our wars are results of projection, of not being able to understand that what we are actually fighting externally is something we don't want to fight inside of ourselves.
1: Here we are, how will we hold this? How will we hold the light inside the dark?
0: If consciousness is going to shift on the planet, it shifts in the single individual. In each episode, my co-host Carol Ferris and I explore the social and personal relevance of Carl Jung's magnum opus known as The Red Book. Carol and I began recording these episodes as live salons online on the first Sunday of our COVID quarantine in Portland, Oregon in the spring of 2020. Each week, we welcome the community into our conversation with a concluding Q&A. Hi Carol again. Good morning. Good morning. So this week we're doing Mysterium Encounter and Instruction. And next week, if you want to get a head start, we are just going to do Resolution, which will finish out the first book of the Red Book. It's a little bit shorter, I believe, the reading, but um, but I think it'll give us a chance to kind of fully catch up and, and engage with the just the full first book before we start with Liber Segundus, which is also then where all the artwork really begins to burst out. And if you've been missing the artwork, you know, there's a reason we haven't been showing that much. And and it really is because Libra Primus doesn't have much art. It's really very much where the very tiny calligraphic text is and little tiny images, but it's not what most people think of when they think of red folk imagery. So so today we are doing a Mysterium Encounter and Instruction and we're going to meet Elijah and Salome Carol, what else for setup for today?
1: We, we like to, to say, where were we last week? And I, the last line of, on page 174 of the previous section that we looked at, he says, um, if you are in yourself, you become aware of your incapacity. You will see how little capable you are of imitating the heroes and of being a hero yourself. So you will also no longer force others to become heroes like You. They suffer from incapacity. Incapacity too wants to live, but it will overthrow your gods.
2: Mm.
1: And so, the, this the experience of the death of the hero, the splitting, the splitting, and the death of the hero, and the arrival at incapacity is such an essential prelude to this section of where he might not be everybody's journey, but it sure was Jung's journey that 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 was what made it possible for him to come to what we're going to talk about today.
0: Carol, I wonder if we maybe can switch things up from just the brief plan that we had. Um, (laughs) Start with the astrology dive and kind of start with um, before, before I read aloud this part uh, around Elijah and Salome so that we can feel this opening and this, the deep dive. And I'll just reference people briefly to, to footnote 161 as she gets into this, which is on page 177. And I'll just read this aloud briefly, Carol. So this is from his 1925 seminar, which I'll hold up in a second. But he just says, I used the same technique of the descent, but this time I went much deeper. The first time, I should say, I reached a depth of about 1,000 feet, but this time it was a cosmic depth. It was like going to the moon or like the feeling of descent into empty space.
1: So this is a horoscope for, in the inner wheel is Jung's birth chart. And the wheel that's around the outside, the second chart, is the date of, the, of this encounter itself, December 21st, 1913. You know, so we went through his dreams about the flood and about the beginning of a civil war and of beginning to understand this kind of interior fracture. This moment was really, really interesting to me because the time itself and re, as Jung lives in a geography and a season and a moment, which is what the outer wheel is, brings him to a crossroads. Literally, you can see it in the horoscope. It's an intersection. And it's a particular kind of crossroads because it's made up of the cardinal signs. So there is the cardinal sign Aries. There's the cardinal sign Cancer. There's the cardinal sign Libra and the cardinal sign Capricorn. So cardinal... To be at the source of something or to be at the heart of something, to be at the origin of something. And the cardinal signs, like the cardinal directions, are primary moments in the zodiacal year because it is when the light is going to change and there is a pivot or a hinge or an opening. And in particular, because it's the cardinal signs, it's an opening to non something that's non corporeal it's not fixed it's not earthbound it's essential and so there are four times a year when in our just regular old walking around lives the spring equinox aries the summer solstice cancer the autumnal equinox libra and the winter solstice capricorn when we are at a pivot point in the year, when we are going to turn, that it's all a function of light and the relationship of light and dark. So when we find ourselves, and we all, we will periodically all find ourselves in this moment, but this moment for Jung is really an important moment. So here in his inner horoscope is Chiron the healer, the wounded healer to be more precise for those of you who are familiar with the Greek myth, opposite Jupiter, which is astrology's name for expansiveness and growth. And here is his Venus and Mercury, his heart and his mind, his voice and his ardor fused together in tender cancer. And along comes Jupiter in Capricorn. So from the time that he had been born, Jupiter had made Several 12 year cycles as a sort of weather event around him. But in this case, the weather brings him to an intersection. And the intersection is an intersection or an opening into spirit. And when we experience these, you know, when I experience them or my clients experience them, the temptation is what road am I going to go down? If I'm at a crossroads, if I'm at an intersection, our mind thinks, which road that we have to choose, which road to go down. But we're never anywhere but in the middle. I don't want to be glib about this, but this is a centering function that brings us to our core. And so here Jung is at this moment, in time with his own nature, in which he has brought by the combination, the spirit of the times and the spirit of the depths, to come to terms in the center and hold still so that something will open for him. And um, there's plenty of other things to talk about in this chart, but I was really struck by the Grand Cross.
0: Carol, can you actually go back and just scroll up so people can see again what, oh, what yeah. just the dates. Yeah.
1: So Jung's birth chart, July 26th, 1875, 7.29 p.m. in Keswil, Switzerland. And the vision itself, he went down after dinner every night at his home in Kuznacht. So I have chosen the time, 8 p.m. But because of the slow movement of the very large planets, the the, the nighttime is um, 8 o'clock makes sense to me, but is also useful. December 21st, 1913, 8 p.m. in Kuznacht, Switzerland.
0: Thanks so much for that, Carol. It feels like this opening, and and when Jung describes dropping deeply in, again that's, you can read a little bit, and I'll just, now I've put it away, but but there's a seminar from 1925 that Sonu quotes quite a number of times in the footnotes of the Red Book, but it's a brilliant further elucidation of what Jung's doing in the Red Book, so if people want an additional text we can get into that another time as well, but it's it really helps to kind of see before Jung takes all the material from the Red Book and fully digests it, you know, into the collected works and and all these essays and books that can often feel a little too scientific or a little too heady, his lectures are really a bridge. And so the 1925 lecture is beautiful in that way. Um, But we feel with this beginning, this new chapter, Mysterium Encounter, when he meets Elijah and Salome, which we're just about to get to, that there is this tremendous opening that starts because it, we really, in a way, start to dive into the Red Book right now. Uh, I mean, in, in a way, the, all the stuff before is kind of these preludes and, preludes and preludes and preludes and preludes, and it's stunning. But it's really not until the death of the hero and not until the encounter with Elijah and Salome that the stories kind of burst forth. So this is on page 174, okay? We're gonna just start with the reading. On the night when I considered the essence of God, I became aware of an image. I lay in a dark depth. An old man stood before me. He looked like one of the old prophets. A black serpent lay at his feet. Some distance away, I saw a house with columns. A beautiful maiden steps out of the door. She walks uncertainly, and I see that she is blind. The old man waves to me and I follow him to the house at the foot of the sheer wall of rock. The serpent creeps behind us. Darkness reigns inside the house. We are in a high hall with glittering walls, a bright stone the cut color of water lies in the background. As I look into its reflection, the images of Eve, the tree, and the serpent appear to me. After this, I catch sight of Odysseus and his journey on the high seas. Suddenly a door opens on the right onto a garden full of bright sunshine. We step outside and the old man says to me, do you know where you are? So I'm going to pause there because there's a lot of dialogue and I want to just kind of briefly set this up again without going back and forth too much of the dialogue. Elijah and Salome are, are these two figures. Jung encounters this older man who he sees as a prophet, and this young woman who he realizes, as Elijah introduces her, her name is Salome. And we did this a bit in the first episode, so if people have seen that, I'm going to go over it a little bit. But it's so important, um, really, for the setup of the book that. Jung's understanding from his Christian training of who Salome was was she was the young maiden who he most clearly equates with Kali. He is terrified of her. She is he, you know, this image, the classic image of Kali and the classic image of Salome. It's the same. It's this kind of bloodthirsty young woman or woman holding the head, this bleeding head that she's responsible for having decapitated. And so he's horrified, Elijah encourages him to uh, engage with her and take her seriously. And And Salome says, do you love me? And Jung says, how can I love you? How do you come to this question? I see only one thing. You are Salome, a tiger. Your hands are stained with the blood of the Holy One. How should I love you? She says, you will love me. So Carol, I'm just going to pause there because we could go on forever just on this piece. What are you feeling over there?
1: Well, let me take the prophet part as with Salome, although, you know, um, Elijah goes on to say to him, as, as Jung is arguing with them, he says, my wisdom and my daughter are one. Her blindness and my sight have made us one for eternity. Uh, the, the place, one of the places that this reading took me uh, was back to the beginning, because in the very beginning of the first book, he opens with a quote in, from Isaiah, and then here he meets Elijah, and Isaiah, in the very beginning of the way of what is to come, Isaiah said, "'Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed?' And now we have Elijah, these, these Old Testament prophets, the Haftarah and, and kings is where we find a lot about Elijah. So I began to think about what I would call prophetic consciousness, about why did Jung, not just because of his religious upbringing, he grew up with a, a father who was a pastor of a small church in the Reformed Swiss Church, so very, very strict upbringing and religious instruction in a way that we don't really imagine it or think about it or have it anymore. And Jung, as a very young man, was deeply, deeply interested in God and increasingly disenchanted with church and rituals. But as I read back through memories, dreams, and reflections about the evolution of his spirit and religious training, I began to think about a really sensitive person in solitude a lot, coming to terms with prophetic experience. So I turn back to a book that I haven't read for a long time by Abraham Heschel called The Prophets, which is an absolutely masterwork on on prophecy, which is essentially about how do we listen to what Elijah called the still small voice within, and how do we establish our, our personal relationship with the divine over and against what Jung comes to call apes and imitation. So this is very reductive, but I went through Heschel who says in his opening chapter, what manner of man is a prophet? Concerned with the human relationship with God, and that means not just God in the abstract or God in a mansion on the hill or God of ritual, but the God that that loves humanity and the loving relationship between humans and the divine. You know, and Satya and I will later get into the whole idea of how, through projection, we, uh, how our God images arise. But what, what Heschel talks about with the prophets, he says, they're concerned with the trivialities. They're concerned with people, not abstractions. They are luminous and explosive. They're agitated and urgent. Their highest good is not wisdom or wealth or might, but spirit. They make no concession, this was really interesting to me, to man's capacity. Since Jung just, we spent last week talking about capacity and incapacity. They're iconoclastic. They challenge what is revered. They're austere and compassionate for humans, and they hope for reconciliation. They challenge the whole country, kings and priests alike. Few are guilty. They hold all responsible. They're in the the place of heaven's blast. How How do you coexist with a living God? They exist in distinction and affliction. They speak even when people refuse to hear. And I, I said to Satya, Satya, this reminds me of a, a book by a Yumian named Mary Watkins, who has a book called Invisible Dialogues and Imaginal Guests. And she says, the only people in our culture who are allowed to listen to their voices are artists and crazy people. Then he goes on to say, prophetic consciousness is a witness The primary content of the experience is to bring the world into divine focus. And then Heschel goes on in his later chapters to talk about prophetic consciousness, the consciousness of inspiration. And when you feel that, for Elijah it was, he said, the hand of God was on me, that he didn't have a choice about it. So I think here, as we meet Elijah and Salome, we're meeting not only Jung's cultural history, religious history of of images before him that are an example of a king killer, in a way, of a hero killer, that he will listen to in the company of a woman who took the head of a prophet, John the Baptist, And a woman who, as he goes on and as Elijah goes on to later say, she loved the prophet who announced the new God. So I, I, that was the direction that I went with this, this opening idea is what, what was the long sort of religious and spiritual history that brought Jung himself to a figure in his psyche that he would listen to?
0: Yes. And gosh, I mean, of course, you're opening up so many things here. Um, For me, the prophet that, I mean, as Jung gets into this, there is no Elijah without Salome. That's fundamentally what Elijah is trying to say to him is he's saying, look, you can respect me because, because I look like a wise man to you. But you need to understand that I don't fundamentally exist as a prophet without my daughter, without my maiden, without my blind maiden, without this woman who you think is disgusting and horrifying. And so we get this kind of Western christian patriarchal man then forced to lean into this kali essence and stretch his consciousness to say what is what is darkness and desire and the feminine and the erotic to me and how can I, how do i actually gain access to the primordial depths and to psyche and to soul not through my head but in fact it's not until the head gets cut off Thank mm-hmm. you to Salome, so to speak, right? That we actually get to drop down into psyche and the depths and feel that connection to 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 chaos. I mean, there's so many lines here to read. He he starts to get into he gets rather stuck in trying to pair Elijah with forethinking and Salome with desire. Pleasure. And we're gonna and pleasure and the erotic. We're gonna get into this throughout you know, every chapter sort of from here on out, so we'll have time with it. But it gets a little overly heady and overly complicated. And again, you can feel Jung's humanness in a way that's always very comforting to me because it's he's he's so fundamentally human as he bumps up against himself and is mad at himself and confused and a little exalted and then down again. And he makes one definition that gets changed to another definition. But let me just read, Carol, I'm going to read the end of 178 through a bit of 179. um, I think it it gets into this this blending of things. Okay. So he says, this is, this is under the italics for those who are following along on 178, which is just after footnote 165 for people with different uh, books. The scene of the mystery play is a deep place like the crater of a volcano. My deep interior is a volcano that pushes out the fiery, molten mass of the unformed and the undifferentiated. Thus, my interior gives birth to the children of chaos, of the primordial mother. He who enters the crater also becomes chaotic matter. He melts. So just feeling Jung's, as if you can imagine, kind of the ego sense or the hero sense, letting himself sink into these depths.
1: That's the center. That's the center of the cross. Beautiful.
0: So he who enters the crater also becomes chaotic matter. He melts. The formed in him dissolves and binds itself anew with the children of the chaos, the powers of the darkness, the ruling and the seducing, the compelling and the alluring, the divine and the devilish. These powers stretch beyond my certainties and limits on all sides and connect me with all forms and with all distant beings and things through which inner tidings of their being and their character develop in me. And again, just that feeling of Kali, that oof, that essence of everything there. Because I have fallen into the source of chaos, into the primordial beginning, I myself become smelted anew in the connection with the primordial beginning which at the same time is what has been and what is becoming. At first, I come to the primordial beginning in myself, but because I am part of the matter and formation of the world, I also come into the primordial beginning of the world in the first place. I have certainly participated in life as someone formed and determined, but only through my formed and determined consciousness and through this in a formed and determined piece of the whole world. And that he's speaking to Elijah there in a way, right? And he's about to say, but not in the unformed and undetermined aspects of the world that likewise are given to me. Yet it is given only to my depths, not to my surface, which is a formed and determined consciousness. And the next bit I'm going to skip because it gets so heady, but that's where he starts identifying Elijah with thinking and forethinking and Salome with pleasure and desire. And again, there's just so much to open up there and, and we'll keep getting into it.
1: Well, but, and it is the first encounter.
0: Should we should we do it then?
1: Yeah, uh, I think so. It is. It's the encounter. I mean, he, he, he names it that. So it, it's, we won't sk- skip to the. Juicy bits, we won't just cherry pick.
0: <laughs> all right, all right. So all right. Okay, it's just right, it gets us out of the poetry a bit to me, but he's here. Yeah. Okay, the powers of the of my depths are predetermination and pleasure. Predetermination or forethinking is Prometheus, who without determined thoughts, brings the chaotic to form and definition, who digs the channels and holds the object before pleasure. Forethinking also comes before thought. But pleasure is the force that desires and destroys forms without form and definition. It loves the form in itself, and it takes hold of and destroys the form that does not take. The forethinker is a seer. He's Elijah there. But pleasure Mm -hmm. is blind, Salome. It does not foresee, but desires what it touches. I'm going to now, and then we'll come back, Carol. Yeah. I'm going to skip to That's one great. paragraph on 181, and then we're just going to come back to dialogue with you and I a bit. But the serpent then, so there's Elijah and Salome, and there's the serpent, right? And then there's Jung. So there's this quaternity with, with all four of them, but, but Jung is observing these three, Elijah, Salome, and the serpent. And on 181, he says, the way of life writhes like a serpent from right to left and from left to right from thinking to pleasure and from pleasure to thinking. Thus, the serpent is an adversary and a symbol of enmity, but also a wise bridge that connects right and left through longing, much needed by our life. For Jung, it's so, everything in in his psychology is about the Taoist, this and that. It's the right and the left. It's the Elijah and the Salome. And this is Jung's encounter via Elijah and Salome, who are telling him to pay attention to them and take them seriously. Um, That they they can't, that Jung can't get away without fully embracing Salome, in addition to Elijah, with whom he's so much more comfortable. And that the snake, while he's scared of it, helps Jung to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth into this path of awakening. Carol, I'm well, overwhelmed. There's so much here. Where, where, tell yeah. me where we go. What do you feel? Well,
1: I think, uh, just, I, I think finish with this part and go to instruction. But I, it strikes me that, of course, for, for the Asian uh, devotees in the room, this is kundalini. You know, that the, these are the two paths that arise. Not so much that i i, I don 't know the Hindu words for them, but this idea that there is that there are these channels in us that weave back and forth back and forth, and we 'll encounter them again, like you know the path to izdubar i mean it 's just really interesting to think about about, about the creation of a path mm-hmm. that comes out of it, and so it is very Taoist if you think about you know the the um, Hanza for the Dao is. A foot stepping mm-hmm. That's what you know. The, and so that's what we have here is he's stepping. He's stepping into something, and it's weaving him. I love it when he says, "A thinker should fear Salome and she wants his head." <laughs> and then goes on to talk about, "For a thinker, your feelings are bad, and for a feeler, your thinking is bad, you know but, So it's pretty clearly and baldly laid out. But again, it's, it's not subtle because it's a primary encounter.
0: No, that's right. And all the layers are there, right? He, he starts with this first encounter where, where he meets Salome and Elijah and they demand that he take them seriously. And mm-hmm. then you can feel the layers of his science self trying to gain a little distance from it all. Cause it's so overwhelming to him. Yeah. So this is where his typology really starts being developed from where he really begins to understand these ideas of thinking function and feeling function. And that And he says, part of what he's saying with this snake image is you can't, in Jung's mind, and this is very much into his understanding of typology, but you can't simultaneously be in your pleasure and your forethought. You, you're, you're going to be in one or the other, which means we always have to be correcting and kind of, you know, polishing up where we were before or or overcorrecting if we get too stuck. And much of the Red Book is Jung's over, or rather Jung's significant correction from having been such a thinker. And that's why for him, Salome had become sort of so, so terrifying, you know, and he sees her as this monstrous tiger. When she says, I love you, he fully recoils. How can I love you? You're a tiger, right? because it has become so distant to him as an academic. And this really, to me, it's so much the core of this book is his reclamation of Salome and reclamation of the feeling function and the beginning to weave all them together, you know, which is why this part kind of overwhelms me because I shoot off in 10,000 directions,
1: you know? (laughs) Well, having reread memories, dreams, and reflections the opening chapters this morning and reading about his grandmother and his mother and, his early relationships with women—you—you you see that this encounter is really significant, you know, not just with the feeling function, but and, and women, you know, from his perspective, women as an embodiment of the feeling function, which he has not embraced at all.
3: Right,
0: and and so right, and that gets into Salome as this anima figure, right? I mean, it, the buzzwords of the Jungian world, but this sense of the feminine soul and as we read the red book together as we keep going through these chapters when he uses soul it's sometimes totally synonymous with salome and oh. and when he when other female figures show up salome's behind them um, and sometimes he seems to step away from that. So it's this constant kind of dance of coming back and forth and finding what's true and where his thread is. And, but he's really, you know, and Carol, something else. I mean, all this stuff about profit. And, and I just pulled this because, you know, Gary Lachman, who wrote this book, Jung the Mystic, was here with us last week and uh, in a different salon. And, and really, he's exploring in this was Jung a mystic and that Jung rejected this idea of being this prophet type and the guru And I think you just started to get into it. Um, The reason that he was so adamant that he wasn't, even though I think he knew he was, right, is because um, everything he was trying to do was to translate the depths so that other people became their own prophets. Yes. And didn't project their own volcanic essence onto him. What he was trying to say was, yes, I have access to the depths, and yes, if that makes me a prophet, I guess that's what that is. But you are also your own prophet. And here is what I have discovered in terms of the, the you know, path of individuation, the psychological development, the, the construction of the hero, the murder of the hero, the encounter with the shadow and the soul. Here's what I've learned. Please go do it yourself. My way is not your way.
1: And that leads into, into instruction where he says, honesty about your yearning will set you on your way.
0: So beautiful. Uh, I mean,
1: it it really is just a a direct segue on page uh, 185 and and begins to talk about that you have to go away from imitation and and apes, that you have to go away from, what other people say to you and what other people tell you and what the, cultural, what the culture tells you. And you have to, and this is what the prophets did, what, what the example is, you have to stick with your experience and you have to love it. You know, and he says at the end of Mysterium Encounter, I, I fell in love with her in the garden. Yeah.
0: You Will know, so. you want to read that to us, Carol?
1: In the garden, page 183, it had, it had to become apparent to me that I loved Salome, this recognition struck me since I had not thought it. What a thinker does not think he believes does not exist and what one who feels does not feel he believes does not exist. And then Elijah says, you should recognize her through your love,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know? And then that brings him to, you know, the, the, to where he is beginning to understand about following desire that is a part of instruction. And he, he says, Elijah, please shed some light. Th- then they go through this dialogue, and, Elijah said, and Jung is trying out all his sophistry on Elijah, and Elijah says on page 185, you're evasive. You cannot extricate yourself from your law. And Jung says, how can I extricate myself from what is unknown to me, which I cannot reach with either feeling or presentiment? Elijah says, you're lying. Do you not know that you yourself recognized what it means if Salome loves you? He said, a young says, you're right, but I have forgotten it again. So this whole dialogue that leads to, you know, stepping into his father's house, stepping into the dream, stepping into women, Mary, our mother, the save mother of our savior, our mother, and being plunged into confusion, then brings him to this idea where on page 188, he says, if you give up yourself, you live it in other, in others, thereby you become selfish to others, and thus you deceive others, never mind yourself.
0: Right. This part is so extraordinary, and and again, feels like such the essence of what what he is. If we step out of the jargon, if we step out of the this and that, and this means that, and just come to the depths of what he's expressing here. It's so embodied and it is so much about the reclamation of the feminine. And it is so much not about thinking one's way through dogmas and ideas. It is about trusting your yearning. And and which for me is one of the most profound feminist or um, kind of testaments to life. It's a liberation of life because he's expressing you don't have to know why you yearn, and we'll read this, because it's, it's the very end of 187, and I'll read it into 188, but it's this deep connection to embodied trust, to saying, "If I yearn deeply, just like a, I think of this so much as a dog who wants to go on a walk, and, the, and you know the, the owner, you know, w- you know, we went on a walk yesterday. I mean, you know whatever the excuses are, and the dog just is sitting there and it's, you, know, and you say, "You want to go on a walk?" dog jumps up off the couch, you know, all it wants is, is this experience of connection. And so for me, Jung is getting so deeply, and I've learned so much from this, getting back into the animal essence of things, you know, getting back into the trust of the embodiment. And so what are you thinking, Carol? Should I, should I start? You no, no, you
1: go, go. Okay.
0: So it's just, it's the very end of 187 and, and then gets into 188 here. He says, it is no small matter to acknowledge one's yearning. For this, many need to make a particular effort at honesty. All too many do not want to know where their yearning is because it would seem to them impossible or too distressing. And this is hero's journey, right? It's saying, this is the same stuff Campbell talks about, follow your bliss. I mean, it's the same essence and for Jung, He had to reclaim his relationship to feeling and his relationship to his feminine in order to trust this. Um, So I'm going to read that last line. I think this is now the third time we've read it, Carol, but it's so powerful. It is no small matter to acknowledge one's yearning. For this, many need to make a particular effort at honesty. All too many do not want to know where their yearning is because it would seem to them impossible or too distressing. And yet yearning is the way of life. If you do not acknowledge your yearning, then you do not follow yourself, but go on foreign ways that others have indicated to you. So you do not live your life, but an alien one. But who should live your life if you do not live it? It is not only stupid to exchange your own life for an alien one, but also a hypocritical game because you can never really live the life of others. You can only pretend to do it, deceiving the other and yourself since you can only live your own life. If you give up yourself, you live it in others. Thereby you become selfish to others and thus you deceive others. Everyone thus believes that such a life is possible. It is, however, only apish imitation. Through giving in to your apish appetite, you infect others because the ape stimulates the apish. So you turn yourself and others into apes. Through reciprocal imitation, you live according to the average expectation. He's saying no life happens if everyone is just mirroring and and mimicking each other. The image of the hero was set up for all in every age through the appetite of imitation. Therefore, the hero was murdered since we have all been aping him. Mm -hmm. Do you know why you cannot abandon apishness? It's for fear of loneliness and defeat. It's very scary to live your own life. I'll I'll read just, actually, it's going to be two more paragraphs because this is just so juicy here. To live oneself means to be one's own task. I'm going to read that again. Thinking alchemy. He gets so close to alchemy here. This is what he's speaking to. To live oneself means to be one's own task. Never say that it is a pleasure to live oneself. It will be no joy, but a long suffering since you must become your own creator. If you want to create yourself, then then you do not begin with the best and the highest, but with the worst and the deepest. Therefore, say that you are reluctant to live yourself. The flowing together of the stream of life is not joy, but pain, since it is power against power, guilt, and shatters the sanctified. The image of the mother of God with the child that I foresee indicates to me the mystery of the transformation. If forethinking and pleasure unite in me, a third arises from them, the divine son who is the supreme meaning, the symbol, the passing over into a new creation. I do not myself become the supreme meaning. And this is where he starts to very carefully differentiate the fact that something, the the prophet is born in him, but he is not the prophet, right? So he says, I do not not myself become the supreme meaning or the symbol, but the symbol becomes in me such that it has its substance and I mine. And I'm going to pause there.
1: You can hear the place... If you think about Heschel's description of the prophets, the loneliness, the solitude, the fear, the life you have to live because you're in the presence of the divine and you've been changed and transformed. It's, you know, it's all here. And of course, at, at the very end of this section, what he, he talks about on page 191, I became a prophet mm-hmm. since I had found pleasure in the primordial beginning, you know, that of, of, of arriving at this, at this central place. and um, I'm going to show this drawing that comes later um, later in the book but I was so moved by this the image of the cool starry night and of the vast sky opens up my eye to the infinity of the inner world which I as a desirous man still feel is still too cold I cannot pull the stars down to myself but only watch them. Therefore, my impetuous desire feels that that world is nightly and cold. It's the primordial place. You know, here's the, the tree of life. Uh, all the great cultures who have the, the, the tree and the, the creatures and the snake. And I, I was just inexpressibly moved by this illustration and of his arrival at this beginning you know, and of having to go through his own process of wanting to have everything ordered, to fall into disorder, and to come to his, his birth, essentially, uh, in, a, in a different world. I, I thought this chapter was absolutely amazing. You know, especially given that it, this, all of this instruction is the second night is December 22nd, but the, the chart itself does, doesn't change. This is really, a, a, you know, some magic moments for him.
0: It's really profound. And Carol, what you just read, I just want to point people to again, is, is footnote 204.
1: Yeah. yeah Which on is page like, 193.
0: <laughs> and it comes a little later, that, that image in the book. Um, it's such a beautiful image.
1: He says, "I uh, at the bottom of, uh, not the footnote, but I won the power back again from the depths, and it went before me like a lion.
0: It's the very end of that section. Carol. I'm going to just, just because you started reading a piece of it, feels like, um, <laughs> but 192, the very end of that you had read, and I just feel it's so important, right? He says, Um, But as I became aware of the freedom in my thought world, Salome embraced me and I thus became a prophet. prophet. Since I had found pleasure in the primordial beginning, in the forest and in the wild animals. So he, you know, he re-embraced his embodied self. He'd re-embraced, he had allowed himself to love this thing that had become sort of rotten inside of him. You know, he saw that his neglect had caused it to rot. And so he loved it again. Instead of rejecting the rot, he said, oh my God, I neglected you. He pulls it back towards himself and he loves it again. It's, he says, it stands too close to reason for me to set myself on par with my visions and for me to take pleasure in seeing. He says, I am in danger of believing that I myself am significant since I see the significant this will always drive us crazy and we transform the vision into foolishness and monkey business since we cannot desist from imitation. So again, this is just his kind of su- his dance throughout his whole life of being this extraordinary seer, you know, but really critically not falling in to the trap yep. of believing himself to be the wise man who's going to open up the universe to everybody. He's simply saying, yeah, I found the door. I get what's going on there. I understand it, but you can do it too. Don't, don't ape me, right? Yeah.
1: No, and the other thing that's, that I just heard that I haven't really thought about before, this idea of, the, of neglected something and re-embraced it, that it didn't rot. That it's the practice that rotted.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: it's the verb. It, it's the verb of how do you, how do you stay with something? Yeah. you know how do you on the path mm-hmm. how do you not get distracted away from the center of it you know and that it's it's either going for it in a certain way or neglecting it you know so that it's that balance too of how you how you stay in the center of something
0: that's right and and yet, it again, and again and yet when we get away from it i think it's also the the courage to face neglect and i mean for me the images And this shows up in dreams all the time, you know, and, um, but the dreams where people in in the dreams uh, have forgotten, you know, it might be forgot to water the plants for too long, or, oh my God, I was supposed to feed those pets, you know, or the baby. I mean, there's layers to it, but these are all dreams of the neglected embodied self or the neglected self. And so those, that horror of, oh my God, I forgot to feed the animals. Oh my God, are they still alive? And then the courage that it takes for us to open the door and see, are they dead? Are they mad at me? Are they starving? We don't want to see the result of our neglect. It's it's horrifying, you know, the result of our neglect. And so I think what's happening for Jung is the courage to look in and see, oh my God, Salome, she's an image of this. And again, this shows up over and over as we continue. He keeps trying to take this seriously in some form and re-encounter it. Okay, should we go to questions? Okay. <laughs> okay, all right, everyone. Here we are sliding into Q&A with all of this extraordinary material. Um, the shyest ones of you often have the most important
3: question. Keep that in mind. Hi, Nan. Hi, Satya. So I guess one of the gifts that Jung had would he, was, is that he was young when he had this experience. And I'm, doing, I'm saying all this with my judging mind. I'm in my early 70s, and suddenly going, I have those dreams, those horrors, and they're usually that I, as a teacher, and I'm a retired teacher, that I have forgotten to teach my first graders how to read, Mm -hmm. and it's almost the end of the school year. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) there's even more terror, as I feel like the the lessons that I'm trying to, (laughs) the lessons, that I'm trying to um, see for myself, I guess there's just increased urgency. That's-
0: well, Nan, let me just quickly say this, that, you know, the, we are all going to go through this 10,000 times. I mean, there's no question to me, and I don't, you know, I don't know your journey, but that this is the first time, or, you know, around the sun for you. Uh, there's no way. Um, right we're all going to screw. This is the thing is no matter how careful we are, how practiced we're, we're going to forget to water the plants. We're going to forget to teach the first graders. The question is, again, can we come back? And that for me is the whole point. It's like, we're all going to step out of practice. Um, We're all going to fall into shadow. I think the issue is, can we, can we say, I forgive myself. I forget. And I feel teary. I mean, life is hard. (laughs) Being alive is incredibly hard, in my opinion. I felt it from the day that I was born. It is incredibly hard to be here, even as much as I love it. And so we have to be kind to ourselves if we're gonna embrace this stuff. But I think the other piece that's interesting to me, Nan, is that you're working the other side of this, it sounds like, in that it's it's about teaching to read. It's not about feeding, so to speak. It's about the intellect. It's about the logos. It's about the words. And so I'm curious for you to kind of, I would, you know, not to do psychotherapy in a group environment here, but just briefly, um, what is the forethinking that for you, it's more the Elijah, maybe that's neglected. And again, this is so important that we have different paths, but where's the Elijah for you? Where's the forethinking or the thinking that needs some attention without your sense of I'm not worthy,
1: you know, um, I, I would like to just add to that, Satya, and, and Nan, I would like to add to it. I think in, inside this is a trust in the aliveness of the soul, not your soul, the soul. And that that's why I was interested in the verb neglect. David Abrams is a very interesting writer who wrote Becoming, a, Becoming Animal and... Um, and The Spell of the Sensuous, and he talks about how when he was in the magic of, of deep jungles of Indonesia, every, he was in relationship with everything, that everything spoke, everything sang, he heard everything, he was in relation with everything, and then he came back to the States, and now he's surrounded by telephone poles and concrete, and he, he lost the connection. And that when he turned around it was still there it's there it's that's why it's our our verb relationship to it it's like our attention or inattention to it it's alive and potent and that we come in and out of relationship with it but that for me and I think what Jung is discovering is that there is that there is love Mm-hmm. and that it's alive and that it exists and that we can turn away from it or we can neglect it or we can we can become embittered or we can soil it but that's our stuff not its if we if we want to think about it as an object or as a place or a thing so i think that that feeling of of guilt of did I, I mean, I, I have this conversation with, with all of us. I mean, this is such an extraordinary time where the world, where the, our whole world, our animal world, our, our wind world, our mountain world, it has a chance to remind us it's still here in its way. And that, that we can have the opportunity to have a different relationship with it in its aliveness. And so, yes, we have a part to play, but I also not just to think about the guilt and how difficult it is, all of which is true, but how it persists. I mean, I think about my garden this spring, everything's bursting and, you know, I can imagine that I'm somehow, you know, the steward of all of it, but it's a lot more potent than I am.
0: Nan, you want to respond to to us and give your we want to give you a chance to say whatever comes to you here.
3: Well, of course, first, I'll just say thank you to both of you, because um, I suspect that Jung dealt with his guilt a lot. And so Mm -hmm. my guilt (laughs) is. Yeah. Um, And just to go back, Satya, to your comment about the rats, the urban rats. What my question for these days is, um, how to be in right relationship with the coronavirus Hmm. and with all viruses Hmm. and with all levels of of, um, being. So thank you, just thank you both. It's it's good for me to work with and process and dream about and write about and live with, yes. Thank Thank you. you. Thank Thank you. you.
0: Thanks, Nan. Uh, There's so many pieces. Uh, We'll go to Steve. Steve, you have a question. Hi,
2: Steve. Hi there. Um, yeah, so, so my question is, and I'm, I'm sorry this is going to be really half-baked because the, the research I did in this was a while ago, but in, in the Bible, the, the story of Elijah and, and Elisha um, is connected with Jezebel, who, who yes. um, was, yeah, she was like this uh, married King Ahab and was um, this prophetess of this nature god, she's associated with serpents. I just find it so fascinating because that in the Bible, that whole story is about Elijah kind of being in this duel, this feud with Jezebel for control, and then Salome in 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 here has a lot of those attributes. There's this association with the serpent, um, but she is his daughter, and I I don't know. I just wondered if you had any thoughts or comments on that.
1: I, I think that's really interesting because I, I went back to Kings no. in the Bible, you know, the one Kings 21 and Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was, was after, she and, she and the king were after a vineyard and contrived to um, have the owner of the vineyard murdered and took it over. And Elijah, there are really interesting stories about Elijah and his solitude before that. He has a reputation as a loner and a zealot. And that that has attracted the attention of the powers that be. And so one of the things that Satya and I wanted to get into at some point, and which we will get into, is you know, this idea of the, of projection. And that the the Bible is full of stories of. Not just Elijah and Jezebel and Ahab, but full of stories of how do you come to terms with the divine? And how do you project your, the negative aspects of yourself, the things that make you craziest about yourself and that are the hardest to live with, onto someone else as the, as the beginning of individuation? And I, so I think that's a really interesting and astute get about, about the content of the prophet and, and the woman you know and and the evolution of it i mean we're still in the evolution of that you know in our culture today we're still in the evolution of that thank yeah, you steve
0: <laughs> footnote 157 i think touches on this just a tiny bit um, which is on page 175 i love that reference you just drew out and i'm going to explore it more myself but another place and i can't find i think it's just right under where i'm looking but but there's another footnote where he says you know, at first he was totally confused about why Elijah would say that Salome was his daughter. And then he says, but then I realized it's everywhere. There's there's okay. all throughout history, there's these images of the older man with the maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, again, as a, as a female-bodied person exploring all this material, I'm always trying to kind of detox myself from the classic archetypal images, which have typically been recorded from the mind's of men, because most mostly men's work has been recorded historically, and so most of the archetypal images we have come from the psyches of men. But I'm really curious to see how the mother and son, you know, if we think of the older and younger, there's the older mother and the younger son, and there's the older man and the maiden. Um, so these just different polarities that show up and that's just something I kind of track through all this is where the polarities show up and what is true to myself, which on any given day, I don't really know. <laughs> it seems to, you know, but what, cause, cause Jung also says at some point in here, this is, there's a footnote where he says, um. Elijah would only show up for a man because you know for a woman it would be a woman god and he does all these binaries and that's part of what you we have to all be very careful with in reading this as he starts to get reductive I still don't know if he's right or not and I've been reading this stuff for a long time because because sometimes I think he's right and sometimes I think it's exactly the opposite and so and and Jung does too because he goes back and forth all the time um so just to stay gentle with it as we find our way through all these different parallels um in any case, that's a very long-winded response, Steve, because I think the core of what you expressed is very curious to me, and I'm going to research more myself. Well,
1: and, and Elijah was the, the only, only mention of Lilith is, comes through Elijah. So, so that idea of where the prophet is with the feminine, that's the guy. It's, it isn't that it's not in Jeremiah or Hosea or, or I, Isaiah or in, in any of the others, but it's definitely there with Elijah. Steve, you want a last word before?
2: Oh uh, no, that's th- th- thank, thank, you so much. Uh, thank you, I'm greatly appreciate it. it. It's really fascinating. It's um that that idea. Of, there, there's this kind of like whole theme of the Jezebel spirit, which seems to tie into this concept of of Salome. Um, yeah, I'm just re- it's really interesting. Thank you. It's a you. great
0: reference. I'm really into it because I didn't give my four-hour uh, soliloquy on Salome and the and the reclamation of Salome. We can go into that more. There's a lecture on it and a paper, you know, but that's my whole shtick. So we can go on and on about it. Um, okay, we've got lots of folks popping up. Um, Richard, you were next in line.
4: Hi, good morning. Hi. Uh, I'm really pleased to be here with you guys for sure. The, the question that I guess I've been wrestling with, if it has to do with the COVID uh, virus and, the question is: What if the virus is the medicine? And the, this whole notion of—I uh, uh, I don't think I would be here in this salon had
1: Richard. We lost you. Do you want I'm to talk not- about? Do you want to talk about COVID as the medicine, Satya? Just sure. start with that.
0: Yeah, I, Richard, you froze. I hope you're still here to hear us. Um, I think what I hear you expressing is is sort of the pullback to yin. You were about to say, I think I wouldn't be here in these salons if I wasn't trapped inside because of COVID, essentially, you know. <laughs> and we wouldn't be doing these salons if we weren't trapped inside because of COVID. And so there's a reclamation of the feminine. Um, again, feminine is such a tricky term, but the yin or the or the inner or the slowing down, the return to soul. If there wasn't this completely different structure uh, that's happening now. So I think certainly, I mean, I think we all, it's such a tricky political thing to say like, oh, COVID, thank goodness for COVID. I'm certainly not going to say that. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us have been struggling under a culture that feels broken and and sociopathic in so many ways and at such depth that it feels impossible to know how we're ever going to change it. And so for me, there is some fundamental shift out of sociopathy, which is, which is, you know, patriarchy that has no connection to the feminine. There's, there's a, uh, the, you know, the lizard brain that has no connection to the embodied soul. And so maybe that's part of what's happening. I certainly hope so for all of us is a return to the embodied soul in this, in a way painful as it is. Carol, what do you think?
1: That's, you know, when you said lizard brain, This is just an abstruse reference. I was in the Galapagos Islands for Christmas in the most extraordinary compound of these ancient, ancient tortoises that are reptiles and got to watch them at each other and one of them looked just like Mitch McConnell. And So I think about the reptile brain that's trying to run things. That's, I'm sorry. Random, I think random about
0: association. It, no, I mean, right. If I go there, my uh, my rage explodes through my skin. Yeah. And I, so yeah. I have to, every time I start, I, I shut it down. And not to become peaceful, but just to save myself from yes. the burning rage. Uh, Kathy, hey, hi
4: there. Hi, I'm Hunt. I'm Kathy's husband, And uh, so kind of the, kind of right with the virus, Um, I wrote uh, Carol after the first session and basically said, war metaphors are really, um, I'm resisting them like the war on drugs or the war on cancer. Why would we go to war with our bodies when the result of the system breakdown would be, say cancer, or I think it'll be very curious to see what, who, how they determine Genetically, who gets this virus and who doesn't? But that's just an aside. Question. I'm I'm interested in the reemergence of the feminine because, uh, as Carol knows, Carol knows my chart really well, um, question. and uh, <laughs> been aware of my feminine for um, <laughs> basically since I can remember as a child. I also played football. You can't get more of a patriarchal. A game than that.
3: So
0: yeah, Kathy wants you to ask us your question, and we're going to ask you the (laughs)
4: same. Get to the
0: the core of it. We love your story, but we want to hear the core.
4: How? Because I see the patriarch resisting. How do you see the feminine surfacing? And that's. I'll just leave it at that. How do you see Salome becoming a part of our? Consciousness in a way that okay. is reflective and integrated. Well,
1: okay. she's sitting there right next to you, poking you. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I go on entrance <laughs> and I just start. I start weaving. You know me. <laughs> start uh, no, but well, I, I, You know, but I. But
1: I think you know. There, you have at your elbow a very, a very good answer. Um, and and the, the the conversation that we're having hashtag me too you know the 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 incredible performances at the at the global meet in your living room yesterday evening you know lady gaga getting all of these people together we're seeing it and we're see, you know respect you know to to do something. That wasn't, I I was so struck by the performances that weren't all showboating lights, staged, lots of background, you know, just how the the sort of consumptive, highly performative nature of things with just the voice and just that person in, in honor of and in gratitude towards the heroes on the front line. And the chance for the WHO to make a statement, the chance for the UN to make a statement, inclusive, full of feeling and about connection. And so I think that that really relates to, to Dick's question too. That, that, that's what your question is about is, is it, I, is it happening because of the virus? I, I could not say about that, but clearly what is happening is this reconnection to vitality love feeling including all of the difficult ones that are fears are horrors you know to to live this with each other and um and so you have you have her at your right elbow <laughs> and you have her i think m- much more actively and largely in the world that's easy that's easy to say in this culture where the feminine is got a tougher place to occupy than, than, than in our living rooms now. So yeah, I'm sure you have something to add. I'll just,
0: well, I I don't have much to add. Um, just briefly, I think the connection, I think is the whole thing. And, and, you know, your first point about war metaphors, those metaphors, I don't, you know, they come from patriarchy, they're patriarchal institutions, their health systems that say, the war on drugs was conceived by the Republicans to destroy people. They knew what they were doing. They were perfectly conscious of it. Um, it was a war on black and brown people, 100%, right? So they knew what they were doing. There's a reason they wanted to use that metaphor to drum people up. It was explicitly a patriarchal move. Um, same with the war on cancer. There's no there's no interest in what's why bodies are out of balance and causing cancer and sick systems. That's something that Eastern medicine is more interested in. But so the reclamation of the feminine is stepping completely outside of all of those systems that just keep drumming the exact same drum all the time. You know, that means it's not just the feminine. It also means we have to have women in charge of systems who have detoxed themselves from patriarchy. And until we get women who have detoxed themselves from patriarchy, who can be on the forefront of some of this stuff And of course, men who are doing the same thing. I mean, it's not simply about female-bodied people, trans people, um, non-binary people, but there's different ways of conceiving all of this stuff. And part of what the Red Book exemplifies is a white man at the top of culture in Europe with all of the wealth in the world saying, oh shit, something is fundamentally off and I am fundamentally out of sorts with myself and with the world and I need to go back and engage with Salome or with Jezebel or, whatever these images are. So this is how I'm brief. Okay. So that's my small rant here. Um, okay. Alexandra, you're our last question. Where are you? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Hi. Yes. Great. Hi. Thank you. Satya, and thank you. Carol. And everyone here. It's making the class these salons, what it is. I guess I just didn't want to miss out my opportunity earlier this morning when you were reading, um, when young was, he felt himself inside the volcano and that chaos.
1: And Carol kind of briefly mentioned that's the center of the cross. Um, and I guess that's quite personal to me since I've I had a very very vivid dream as a child of entering into a center of a cross. And I um, I didn't know if that was going to be something that will come up again at a later on or what exactly the correlate is between the volcano and the center of the cross well i i think certainly from an astrological point of view as we go along the cross gets stronger and deeper it's not like oh well i had a dream and it went away it's it it begins to gather depth and uh, and power this is his this is that's why i say this is a, a an, an encounter it's it's been coming Carol, since i, I-
0: I just, yeah. I'm sorry, I want to interrupt because I want to make clear. When you said that, you were talking about the Cardinal Cross.
1: Yeah, the Cardinal just Cross.
0: prevented yeah. with the astrology. Yeah,
1: but it's the, you know, it's yeah. the idea of a cross. A cross is, you know, the, the cross has so many, I mean, as a symbol, it stands in so many different ways in so many different cultures, not just in Christianity. And, you know, the other word, uh, uh, Alexander, that you want to remember is the crux of something, you know, I loved it in Harry Potter, the horcruxes, you know, it's something that focuses everything in the center that brings all of the intensity and the power and the energy to the center from the directions where, where the temptation is on the path, go over here. And now go over. here. Oh, and now go over here. But it's like, boom, that it keeps bringing us back to the crux of the matter and that it won't, you, you won't let go of it and it won't let go of him.
0: Thank you, yeah, thank you. I, I think too, I mean, just to kind of come back a little bit to Jung's typology, but also childhood dreams. I'm wondering if I've got this behind me. There's a, there's a work, um, the Philemon Foundation put out the book, Children's Dreams. I don't know if you know that book, but ironically, it's not actually the dreams of children. It's the dreams that adults had as children that kind of get pulled forward. And there's a lecture series on this. But these herald dreams, I mean, these dreams that we have as children and look back on. How old were you, Alexandra?
1: I was 11 or 12.
0: So that's kind of this dawning of consciousness, right? It's this time of dawning consciousness and kind of the shift into the puberty adult self. That's when all the initiation ceremonies would happen. But just to hold that for yourself as kind of an early herald dream of wholeness to the kind of center of the quaternity. Um, mm-hmm. where, what are we all trying to get to? And, and, um, You know where are we all growing, and that book may kind of—I don't know if you've encountered it—but it may offer a little support of how to understand the dreams in retrospect a little bit.
1: Well, thank you. It's a mandala, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're 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 coming to Jung's mandalas, which is what held him through the the most um, difficult and profound shaking that he went through. So that, that 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 that's the other thing that you dreamt yourself into the center of a mandala. Hmm.
0: yeah there's a yeah (laughs) thank you Alexandra yeah
1: Yeah. thank you so glad to be here thanks Satya
0: it's such a pleasure thank you all it's so lovely to be with all of you again and so next week again just to say finally we're going to finish up Liber Primus and we'll finish with the aptly named chapter called Resolution and then we'll we'll get into Liber Segundus in the following week So that's our journey together. We'll see you all soon. Thank you. For more, please visit salomeinstitute.com. And please review, rate, and subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. Many thanks to our producer Ayal Alvis for turning this audio into a podcast, to the very talented Haley Hendricks for our intro and outro music, and to Ray Davis for our podcast, Art. We're grateful to all of you. Please tune in soon for another episode of the Salome Podcast.